Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello and welcome to the Political Party Podcast, this one featuring Aaron Bastani. And what a week to be talking politics. Uh, an incredible. By the time you listen to this, who knows what will have changed. And that's what's remarkable is how quickly uh, some of these discussions may, um, may date. But enjoy it anyway. Sometimes it's good to talk about politics uh, and not just the minute-by-minute minute, uh, running story of, uh, of what's going on in uh, Theresa May's government. If she's still Prime Minister by the time you listen to this, who knows what's going on. Um, uh, before we talk about Aaron, I'm doing uh, some live dates before Christmas that I'm very excited about doing two nights at the South Bank Centre, which is a very exciting, beautiful venue up on London South Bank. Uh, I'm doing the 1st and 5th of December with my now fully updated Brexit Through the Gift Shop show. So I did it in Edinburgh and um, I'll be updating it given what's happened this week uh, and what will happen between now and the 1st and 5th of December. You can get tickets for that at the southbankcentre.co.uk. Uh, so that's the 1st and 5th of December at the South Bank Centre, an hour of uh, up-to-the-minute stand-up and impressions, and then two very special uh, Christmas specials of this show, The Political Party, at the Leicester Square Theatre on the 19th and 20th. It'll be different guests on different nights. I'm on the verge of being able to tell you who it is. I'm very excited, but I can't do that yet. But you can get your tickets uh, already for that. So, Aaron was on. I've wanted to have Aaron on for ages. We almost made it happen uh, earlier in the year. And he was a brilliant guest. Um, of course... As you know, I, I believe in sitting down and talking to people uh, across the political spectrum, whether you agree with them or not. Uh, Aaron is exceptionally bright, clearly uh, an, an intellectual who does a lot of really hard thinking. So regardless of whether it's left or right, I just think it's really refreshing to sit down opposite someone who's tried to think of policies and come up with ideas, whether it's about the future of the economy or society or whatever it is. Uh, and he has this phrase, fully automated luxury communism, which we talk about. And whether you agree with it or not, it's just great to hear someone who's had a big idea and is um, trying to articulate it. And he's he's really interesting person to talk to. Then we unpack all sorts of other things. Uh, Corbyn's Labour Party, his role in being a supporter of Corbyn Online, and uh, I think by his own admission, I'm sure he'd admit a robust supporter of Jeremy Corbyn Online, and the things that go along with that, the future of the Labour Party. Um, but it's just so good uh, to to sit down with people and, and talk politics, and it's um, every guest brings something completely different. Uh, and this goes on. Uh, the time just ran away with us, as it always does. I know this is becoming a cliche, um, but I loved it. It was a real thrill. And it's good to think about, particularly automation, where this is a thing that 
really, neither of the two main parties are talking about much. It's not at the top of the agenda, but it's huge changes are coming in terms of automation and what that means to the labour market. And Aaron, uh, and I can't wait to read his book, has, has done some really big thinking on what the implications of that be, how you make it um, fair, and what the political uh, fallout of that is, and how you use it to the advantage of, as he would say, you know, the left, the Labour Party, communists, or wh- however you would um, describe that... that um, that group. So it's great. Uh, he was wonderful and, um, well, enjoy. I'm joined by Aaron Bastani. Aaron, welcome to the show. My pleasure being here. It's a pleasure to have you here, particularly at a time which is very exciting for you, uh, not just politically. We're talking on a day where uh, Dominic Raab has resigned as Brexit Secretary. Who knows how much will have changed by the time that this goes out in the next couple of days, so forgive us anything uh, that might be rapidly out of context. Um, but for the position of Jeremy Corbyn in the Labour Party, for you personally, uh, your book, Fully Automated <laughs> Luxury Communism Now, I think I've got the title right, uh, is out in a few months, but the publicity rounds have already started uh, uh, to some extent. What is Fully Automated Luxury Communism? Wow. Um, Big question. Great question. There's actually a chapter given over to answering that question. Um, fully automated luxury communism, those words in that sequence. So let's start with fully automated. Um, it builds on an observation that clearly uh, we are moving to increased levels of automation. Anything which is repetitive, arguably, may be automated in the next several decades. Now, even if you're more conservative on this, even if you don't think everything will be automated, I think it's always it's always reasonable to be conservative about this stuff what that will mean is that an ever larger share of the population will have skills which will mean they're competitive with robots yes and those skills which aren't capable of being automated will become more valuable and therefore they can ask for more money so best case scenario is it will lead to massive income inequality already worse than what we have um in addition to that the sort of developmental trajectory of the poorer countries of the global south countries which have been described, I think, as the next seven, Indonesia, Nigeria. They won't go on the same trajectory that China went on before them, South Korea, Japan, because in the process of manufacturing industrialization, clearly you need fewer human beings. So those kinds of things actually may return to the sort of heartlands of industrial capitalism. Germany already has obviously significant manufacturing, but also the United States, Britain, France, wherever. We call it onshoring. So even the conservative estimates around automation are clearly, you know, transformational so that's the fully automated it says there's an observation there we want to build a politics on that which is progressive um luxury uh basically if we are moving to a world where human labor will be less and less necessary uh, a world which is not necessarily moving to post-scarcity but clearly a, a form of abundance which is presently difficult to conceive then for our pathetic little minds luxury is probably quite a good provocation in terms of trying to convey what that will mean now i don't think we'll all be walking around like it's a rich gang music video or like rihanna but a world built on necessity utility um the work ethic as we presently understand it will have gone then communism is the final bit and people say well this is just technological determinism it's not political you just think these things are inevitable i don't and i I outline why that's the case and why it's a political project the word communism is the politics that's bolted onto that. So you could have fully automated luxury liberalism, you know. The reason why I say communism is because I believe all of these trends possess the potential to undermine the key features of the capitalist mode of production, which are labour having to be sold on a market for a wage, 
clearly automation is one of the reasons why that may be imperiled. Uh, production for profit. We already see parts of the economy where that's no longer the case. A really facile example is Wikipedia. If you look at the advertising industry, I don't know about you, but when you want to buy a product, do you really look at the advertising? No, you go on Amazon, you look at the reviews. Mm. And that's a form of peer review. Um, you're a TripAdvisor, a great example in regards to the services. Just eat. Just eat, exactly. So there are whole sways of the economy which are effectively being withdrawn from commodity circulation. Now, I know these are for-profit companies, but clearly they're very different. The paradigmatic example is music. Yes, streaming is a multi-billion dollar business. Yes, actually, it's growing, and music sales the first time in decades grew in the US, I think, last year. But we know that we're never really going to go back to the sales volumes of the mid-1990s with CDs. There's been a deflation there. There's less stuff being sold, even though more and more of us are listening to the music. Now, my wager is that will apply to ever more parts of the economy. But with music, which is a good example, it means that artists can't make money anymore from mm. selling records. So they're having to do gigs. If you're in a band, you're splitting that five ways as well as the promoter and agents and whatever else. Yeah. It's not been good for artists, no. the rise in sales yeah. or the rise in streams and listens. Well, it's been good for the consumer because they can listen to more music than ever before. And if we think of music as, um, as having a use value, something we enjoy, that would be a good thing. Now, because of the economic system we live under, capitalism, and you're selling things for profit, and because it's an information good, it's difficult to sell it for profit because it's now capable of what's called infinite replication infinite replication at zero marginal cost, which is to say, once you have paid the sunk cost of one that song, the recording studio, the writing, etc., etc., it costs virtually nothing to reproduce added into yes. an item, which is, that wasn't possible before digital, right? Um, however, if we move to an economic system where we have, for instance, uh, universal basic services, I'm not a fan of UBI, but we can talk about that. Uh, if we have a system whereby, um, whereby wealth, and not just wealth, but sort of not incomes rather, but wealth is more evenly distributed across society. Uh, you can foresee uh, a social settlement where artists are very well remunerated for uh, for their success. It just wouldn't be through the market. So in terms of the communism bit, in, in simple terms, would that just mean that we, do we embrace automation? Mm. Not only do we uh, share the proceeds of growth, or whatever phrase you'd like to use, but that it effectively is entirely nationalised. No, I mean, um, I actually spoke to a chap at The Economist about this a few a few days ago. Um, I am not adverse to the market system. I think the market system's it's perfectly good, and I don't foresee a future anytime soon where um, we need the state to produce cars or laptops. I think we we all agree that they're, they're getting better all the time. We you know they're great. Where I think the state should intervene is clearly in in areas which are public goods. This is a slight deviation from the argument or the the discussion we just had, but I always think of my politics as socialist ends liberal sorry socialist means liberal ends which is to say i want a society where everybody has access to the resources to be exactly who they want to be which is a liberal understanding of the good life i just don't think the liberal society with private property fanaticism allows that and i think you you need a measure of distribution of resources i think historically social democrats have said um, education healthcare, housing and i would fold a few more into that to have the ubs i think once you have a really um once you have a really generous UBS, like I say on things like housing, education, healthcare, probably information, the internet, things like that, travel, transport, public transport, free at the point of use. And you say, well, how could that be free at the point of use? Well, if you look at the intersection of declining costs of renewable energy and automation, then the car and travel should be, that's the ground zero, surely. 
because you're removing the labour component and clearly we'd still want the guard on the train, the guard on the bus, but operating a 24-7 bus network without the drivers is pretty interesting. It may ultimately also be safer. Also operating on, on energies which oppose fossil fuels, which are getting cheaper, have been getting cheaper every year for the last 50 years. If that continues for the next 50, we're looking at what we would call deflationary trends in transport. So actually things like transport all of a sudden, yeah, maybe that can be a UBS and maybe it won't actually cost the earth, which is why I favour UBS over UBI. Um, so, yes, for the things that are UBS, the state's in control. And I think that would actually give the resources to individuals, either individually or in collaboration with others, to produce things in the market. And it would actually be far more competitive than what we presently have. Is communism the right word for it? Mm, the policies at the end of the book, which are outlined, are absolutely not fitting with what you would call 20th century communism. Um, but I would say nor are they um, equivalent cent- 20th century social democracy because my critique of 20th century social democracy is perfectly adequate politics for its time, but it was premised on very high levels of growth, which I believe won't be coming back, at least not in you know the advanced capitalist economies because of reasons of um, women coming onto the labour market, um, uh, fossil fuels... Uh, people moving from country to city. This was what allowed three, four, five percent growth. Those one-off factors have disappeared, which is why we have terminally lower growth decade on decade in this country since the 1960s, um, and a host of other countries as well. Uh, so I wouldn't call it social democratic either, because social democratic says the economy grows. We have a very rapidly growing market economy, and the dividends of that go towards social justice. I don't think that works either. And I've used the word communism because ultimately it's a, it's a provocation. Uh, but also it's to express the fact I don't think that 20th century social democracy really stands up to the trends and the challenges. So in terms of your own uh, politics, I mean, we've all, many people have voted for different parties in the mm. past, been members of different parties. Mm. What, what's your political issue there? Because you were in the Greens for a bit. Mm. About a year. Um, were you in the Lib Dems? Never. I love this. I think there's a tweet which people cite, but no, never. Well, that's how I couldn't find any evidence, Sadly. I wasn't sure. Never remember the Tories. Never remember. I wrote an article for 2007. Um, my friend was the head of the tourist site at UCL. He said, write something about Labour. So um, you may be able to find that. And it's about about Labour in a Tory publication in 2007. I think off the back of that, people have said I was a Tory. I've only ever voted for Labour and the Greens. I've only ever been a member of Labour and the Greens. Um, so. And has your politics changed at all, do you think, in the last 10 years? Hugely. I mean, I was a, um, I was a sort of... I actually think there's a lot of people like this around the Corbyn project. I know Matt Zarb, for instance, is one. He joined Labour in 2007 after the crisis. Yes. Because he thought, well, Blair's gone. You know, I was never going to vote Tory. I actually, I kind of liked what was going on. But I think, you know, Brown's kind of like Blair plus. And it's going to be a bit more radical, a bit more social democratic, conventionally social democratic. And I, I felt the same thing would happen. And so those were really my politics. And when that didn't happen, what happened? it happened in a few places. It happened in the car industry, for instance, but not many other places. And when that didn't happen, uh, and when we had um, austerity after 2010, I think there was this weird tension between, I was looking at the technologies on offer, I was looking at all these smart people we have, all the amazing infrastructure we have in this country, and it did feel like, for me, after 2010, there was a a total rejection of what we can maybe discuss this later on, neoliberal ideology, Um, whereas before I thought it could be worked with and against. Uh, So, yeah, absolutely been a development, yeah. And now we're in a situation where um, you know, your, your wing of the party or your, your ideas are absolutely in the ascendant on the left and are 
you know, judging by the last election, far more popular than people ever thought there would be. We could get into where mm. the election result came from and how much it was to do with Brexit, but there's, there's no question that Jeremy Corbyn, with the sort of ideas that you're talking about, um, is far more popular with these sort of ideas than, than most people thought he would be. Do you think Britain is becoming more left-wing? I always think it's been quite left-wing. I think Britain... So France has r- radical um, institutions and I think quite conservative people. I think Britain's the other way around. has conservative institutions, which presents a problem for the left, obviously. Um, has conservative institutions, I think quite radical people. Um, there's a, For instance, there's a strain of anti-authoritarianism, even through right-wing ideology, I think, historically, that you don't really get in other countries. So... I do think it's got more left-wing. I think that's an outgrowth of material changes over the last 15 years, 20 years. Uh, but I also think there was always a, a latent radicalism there. And in terms of uh, Corbyn himself and, and your your proximity to him, obviously you're a very vocal supporter of Jeremy Corbyn. Mm. Um, do you talk to him regularly? No. Guy barely knows who I am. No, he does. But, I mean, he'll know my name and he knows of who I am. Of course he will. No, 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 honestly. Honestly. There's a big... It's like any party. How would he not? If I know who you are, he's bound to know. No, he knows. But I mean, obviously, I don't know. I, I, uh, I sometimes... You've interviewed him and stuff? Oh, yeah. No, but he's a very... He's a tremendously busy person, right? I mean, I'm not... I'm not that high up the, uh, the list. I know a fair few people in his office. Um, I know a few sort of people around him who are close to him. Uh, and I, I knew some of them even before um, this stuff happened. But no, no. I really don't. I mean, I... I you know... I, I have a rapport with, for instance, John McDonnell that I wouldn't have with Jeremy Corbyn just because he's just less busy. Uh, and maybe, uh, is he more... I don't want to sound rude about Jeremy Corbyn. You can, it's, it's your podcast. I suppose... Well, no, because I like to be nice. <laughs> and, I'm, and I want to get the assessment right. Yeah. Is McDonnell, for want of a better phrase, more of the ideas guy than Corbyn is? Is he more open to this sort of stuff intellectually? I think, actually, they're both kind of like sponges, Actually, I think that's their. That's you know, in many ways, that's their strength. Um, uh, they don't think they've got all the answers. Um, I think John John McDonnell is probably better at conveying a certain idea of what a political strategist generically looks like. So I think people go, well, okay, that guy looks and sounds more like a strategist than Jeremy Corbyn. But I think they've broadly got the same skills, which is they're receptive to others. They lead by enabling. They're very strong um, mentally. Which actually, I have to say, as much as I dislike her, I mean, Theresa May is showing the same quality. Um, so no, they're quite they're quite similar. I mean, I think ultimately Jeremy Corbyn's critique of capitalism is a moral one, yes. and John McDonald's is maybe more of an economic one. So in terms of this book and these ideas, are these the sorts of things you would you would discuss with John and uh, on occasion perhaps Jeremy? Is the Labour Party open to these sort of ideas about automation and how to make it work for for working people? If that doesn't sound terribly sort of Ed Miliband-style language. I don't think they would call it fully automated luxury communism, and I'm not. I'm not expect. I'm not expecting for precisely that reason. I don't want to call them cause them a political headache by having sort of a, a quote from them on the book. Um, but it's clear that, for instance, there's the uh, alternative models of ownership document that Labour had out, uh, and that dovetails quite nice, nicely with a few of the things I say about worker ownership, socialising capital markets, the Preston model, and so on. So, in terms of the proposals, I think there's a great deal of alignment. Uh, and I do think it's not, it's not just Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell. I think there's many people in Britain, in the Tories and the Lib Dems, uh, but just the general public, that know these technologies, whether it's renewables, whether it's automation, whether it's some of the stuff we're now seeing in gene sequencing, gene editing, 
Um, these are really big, and they're going to disrupt a lot of the ways we do things. So I, I don't think it's just them, but I think the, the reason the reason they will be more open to it is because they're not in power. You know, the Tories have no incentives to engage with ideas which are going to be very disruptive because that doesn't in any way politically benefit them. I'm sure there's there's Tories who may be in Parliament in five, ten years' time who who are absolutely engaging with the same issues, yes. I just wonder in terms of where Labour is now, it feels like because it's on the brink of power, mm. there, is a, there is a pragmatism and a discipline that's, that comes and goes depending on what's happening that week. Mm. But certainly since the last election, you can see that Corbyn and McDonnell know that they have to behave slightly differently to how they have. Uh, professionalism has, mm. has crept in. Triangulation, which was a dirty word, has been partially embraced. Um, I just wonder now whether ideas like this are almost too radical even for, for Jeremy and John. Possibly. Um, I mean, certainly the communism word would be. Uh, but like I said, that's more of a literary literary provocation. I had, I, I said that word, provocation, and Ben Bradshaw said, oh, you're like, um, what did he say, Katie Hopkins. The point is, a provocation is useful because often when, I, I like listening to people who are very different, I certainly not listening to Katie Hopkins or Piers Morgan, <laughs> but I like listening to people who, who very much disagree with me yes. uh, from other political perspectives because you, you can only form what you believe in opposition to other people. Really, so I think that that the use of that word communism sort of conjoined with the, the rest of the book, the rest of the interpretation of what where we're at and where we can go, I think that's really useful because it allows people to sort of establish themselves politically. You know, I don't want to call it fully automated luxury social democracy because people are like, oh yeah, okay. I want people to go, I'm against this. Why am I against this? I'm for this. Why am I for this? Or I'm not sure. Here's why. So I wanted it to be very sort of deterministic. You know, what do you think? That's obviously, like I said, it's a literary provocation. It's a diff- that's not what you do in party politics, anything right. but. You're trying to build coalitions. Um, so I think, like I said, I think some of the specific policies there will probably be in the next Labour Manifesto, the Preston model. Um, the, I think the UBS stuff is incredibly radical, potentially. Uh, it's amazing framing, really, for nationalisation in certain areas. But my market is not, um, is not the... Ultimately, it's not even the Labour... The Labour Call Vote. This is a book which I want everybody to read and to think about. That's a big market. Well, yeah, 60 million potential buyers in the UK alone. People who are politically curious, right? Yes, of which course. Is, well, this is why it's so interesting. Um, I, I just wonder what your role is then in, in, in the Labour movement at the moment, uh, even without the, sort of using Corbyn as a, mm. as a guide point, is are you a policy guy? Are you a campaigner? Are you a mixture of these things? Are you a provocateur? Like, what is? How do you see yourself? What would, if you had to write a CV, how would you describe yourself in one word? I mean, this is becoming a problem because... Um, <laughs> problematic, maybe that's the word. Problematic, yeah, it is. Because I, I think you're right. You can't really, you can't really um, sort of bestride multiple areas at once like that. Maybe you can. Can you? I mean... I, uh, I've got. I've, I've. I did public policy. I've got a you know a PhD. I often get the Mickey taken out of me on it on Twitter about it. <clears throat> so, Why did you get the Mickey taken? Well, because it, often because there's this there is this meme, isn't there? Especially amongst the FBPE crew, and they would be like. So by the way, Corbett, what does FBPE? I have no idea. Mean? Follow back people's Europe. Is that what it is? Something like that. I've got a lot. I see it all the time. Yeah. I'm ashamed of it. I've and they're like, "You're all I've thick," good. and I'm like, "Well, I mean, I can't be that thick. I've got a doctorate." And they're like, yeah. "Oh, look at him. He think you know." He, I was. I actually don't. I don't think you know a piece of paper makes anybody smarter than anybody else. I just, I, I, well, it shows a level of attainment, doesn't it? Having, a, having a PhD, can I can't be, be not stupid. I can't be thick. I mean, most people aren't. Th- you could be wrong. You can be wrong. But that's different. Often these people are the most wrong, right? You know. <laughs> um, 
uh, fanatic. PhD is a huge achievement. Oh, thank you. But it is, isn't it? I sacrificed a lot of my adult life for it, yeah. Well, I actually one of the things that I always think of now when I'm trying to lose weight is how I remember seeing it on a blog post or something. You said that when you were writing your PhD, yeah. you really, the brain needs fat. Yeah. And I console myself to that. That's true. At times, when I'm eating fat, I think that's just quite good for the brain. It's really, no, it's really true. I mean, I used to have cheekbones. And then I finished my PhD and, they, you know, I've never come back. For, I think that's just aging. <laughs> that's just aging. No, no, it's true. It's um, uh, the sort of the, the two big things that helped me write in my PhD were moving from coffee to tea. Coffee's awful for stuff like that. Oh, my God. I think coffee generally is, once you turn mm, 27, 28... Oh my god, I thought you were going to say 30. How old are you? No, I'm early 30s. I was going to say, but 27 is so young. No, but I'm looking back. Yeah. And like, there was a, there was a period of like de- declining returns, you know? Yeah. And there were things I'm like, I probably wouldn't have done that. Or, oh wow, that time I couldn't go to sleep. It, it, it kicks in it's around so bad for you. late 20s, yeah. So tea, and would you have sugar in your tea or not? I mean, this no. Is, no, no. No, no. And then pasta in a very fatty pasta. So what like? Um, I would often have spaghetti al burro, which is like oh, nice. butter and parmesan. Oh, with Such a double cream parsley. A little bit of lemon juice in there just to wake you it could. up a bit. Yeah, you could. A bit of lime. Yeah, 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 you could. I love pasta. I love all foods. This is part of the problem. But you must work out a lot. because No, you're not anymore. I mean, a bit, but not, not properly. Because you work. I mean, not that this is... <laughs> since we've gone down the 70s, there are pictures of you online. Yeah, that's when I was younger. Stripped to the waist mm. in the street at some. Mm. I'm not sure it was May Day. Was it the Was it the student protest? Um, yeah, it was outside Chop Top Shop. <laughs> Ironic, because you didn't have one on. Um, well, no, that was the point because it was a Top Shop T-shirt, and that was the, it was a joke. But obviously, when the Daily Mail sends their press photographer, that's not. But you're in incredible physical condition. Back, well, I was a young person, wasn't I? I know, but I have been. I mean, <laughs> a lot of us have been young and have never had that sort of physique. Yeah, I, was, I, was, I think it's probably gone for good, to be honest. But have you got kids or...? No, I haven't, no. You no, there hard? really is no good excuse for it. You're absolutely right. No, no, no. I think once you've got kids... You look no like you've got kids. <laughs> no, no, no. Got kids. I mean, most no. people in their 30s have... I think once you're 35, I think it's probably likely that that's... So... Yeah, I mean, I'd, that's I'd, it. I run a bit. What, what, so okay. what do you eat? Um, I'm actually on a pro- I try to do a protein diet at the moment, but the problem is I end up snacking. That's the problem. What do you snack I, on? I really, well, just whatever's knocking around. Lollipops. <laughs> do you have a sweet tooth? I've got a really sweet tooth. Tripalia. Really? So what's, that's basically what, seeds and... The, paleo, the, thing, the, thing, about, the thing about paleo is it's really good. For, the, the desserts are actually delicious. Okay, so what sort of desserts can you have on paleo? So you can have a nice sort of chocolate brownie and it would be a bit of, it would be walnuts, dates, cocoa powder, coconut oil. I'm allergic to nuts. All sugar, yeah, you can't do paleo then. You're allergic to all night, yeah, 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 yeah. Kill me, probably <laughs> mate. So what? Uh, I could just, I could just have a, I could have a non-nut brownie, can I? Mm. But then this, I suppose that's, refla- that's the stuff that's replacing the grains, effectively. Damn it! I love Maltesers. <laughs> I find it really hard to go to bed without a bag of Maltesers. Dates. Well, Dates are very sweet. Trouble. Bananas. That's bad though, isn't it? High sugar. If you get or, or dates, and I tell you what's really nice is if you get dates, wrap and, them in bacon. Huh? And wrap them. Yeah, in that's bacon. a paleo thing. Yeah, you can do that. Could you? You can. Yeah, yeah. That's like Christmas every day. Yeah. Dates and um, uh, coconut cream, and it tastes like a Raffaello. You know the white chocolate. Oh, lovely. Mm. Okay, okay, okay. So just eat them all day, and I'll lose loads of weight. Uh, well, I think the nut allergy might be a problem for you. But I think I think absolutely anybody. This is getting on top of it. I think anybody can. I think anybody can lose weight. 
The great thing about paleo is you can eat as much as you like. That really appeals to me. Yeah. I'm going to Google it after this. You're starving your body of a whole macronutrient, i.e. carbohydrates. Yeah. And then your body just goes and it, go, it thinks it's starving. I mean, that sounds like me all the time. <laughs> I think I'm starving for the, the moment I wake up, I'm thinking of like madras, spag bowl, <laughs> fillet steak, pies. Why don't you try this Tom, uh, Tom Watson thing, the bulletproof diet? You know what? Because it sounds like he just has a coffee in the morning and then that's it. What is it? Coffee, butter and coconut oil. Have you not, have you not tried this? No. Is I it thought what? everybody tried it. No. No. I haven't tried it. Have you tried it? <laughs> Producer Daisy hasn't tried it. Have you tried it? Yeah, it's amazing. And does it work? Well, it fills you up, but then I suppose so, so would a latte, wouldn't it? And it's got lots of calories in it. And it's just one a day and that's it. So what, uh, uh, so what they, I think the idea is it's like intermittent fasting, right? Okay. And it basically, it's basically trying to establish that your body doesn't intake carbohydrates for, let's say, 14, 15, 16 hours. So you don't eat after 10 o'clock. You wake up, you have your bulletproof coffee, and then you might not have a meal meal until, say, 2 p.m. Oh, that's okay. So yeah. you've basically got, yeah, it's called um, intermittent dying. Okay. Uh, dying. Maybe that as well. <laughs> that's what it leads to, it, yeah, it, if, you, if you lose enough weight. Intermittent fasting. <laughs> yeah. Well, it seems to work for Tom Watson. So you- I mean, his weight loss is incredible. You did eat a really big bit of cake earlier. I know. Don't fucking grasp me right up. Before we start, before you arrived, I was, oh, man. I ate a massive slice of cake. Before what, we what cake was it? Red velvet. Have you ever had red velvet cake? I before? don't really like red velvet cake. Oh, mate, it's like cheesecake icing over a cake. It's like two cakes. It was leftovers, to be fair, but obviously there are calories in leftovers, as I found out to yeah. my um, peril. It, I just, I can't stop. I've got a real compulsion to eat. I love food. Is it? Do you do it when you're bored? I don't when I'm bored. I don't when I'm excited. I don't when I'm awake. I don't when I'm asleep. You can take it's up just, smoking. I've given up smoking two years ago. It was bad for my asthma. No, I mean, no. Oh, this is. God. I'm just trying to think. No, no. You need obviously. You need to. You need to find a new compulsion. Seneca had this down. He said, "You know, you can't cultivate virtues. You need to cultivate useful vices." Yes. I mean, I did try just drinking fizzy water all day. So buying litres and litres of fizzy water just made me feel sick. Um, but I'm trying to think of a way to link this back to politics. I suppose, in a way, if we are going to talk about health, you were very healthy and you were very um, yeah. physically fit. And um, you, were, you were at the... It was a, so what was the protest? It was... Um, Topshop tax avoidance. Topshop tax, tax avoidance. And that picture... Yeah. You got in trouble. Did, so what, what, were you arrested that day? No. You were just told off? No, I wasn't arrested. No, no, no. I was arrested. First time I was ever arrested. So how many times have you been arrested? Not many. I'm just trying to think the first time I was ever arrested. <laughs> after that, it was... Hmm. Oh, it wasn't until summer the following year, maybe. And what, what was that for? Um, it, I was actually let off. It was um, a friend of mine was arrested and the officer said he'd done something which he hadn't and he sort of pulled him out and I just tried to pull him back and ultimately it was like a sort of melee and we ended up on the floor. And I was charged with obstruction and arrest. And if you if you Google this guy, Ashok Kumar, A S H O K K U M A R, Met Police, um, the officer was going to basically was on the brink of lying in court. And then a video came to light which said that the arrest wasn't warranted, uh, brought into question his testimony, and then by virtue of that case collapsing because it was. Um, wasn't joint en- joint enterprise, but we were both co-defendants because that one collapsed, and obviously I hadn't done anything illegal. So that was the first time I was arrested. Are we scared? Mm, yeah, I think so. There was I a- would be petrified if I ever got nicked. But that's not serious. 
I know, but you get thrown in the back of the van. You think, oh god, here we go. It's my rest of my life over. You could have ended up in prison. You never know. No, that's not. I mean, that's like trespass or something. What I was being charged with. I mean, the other guy, he could have been yeah. in deep trouble. Yeah. So what? When else have you been arrested? I've only been arrested. Let me just think. <laughs> I mean, I've only been arrested and actually done something which merited arrest once. And what was that? Um, it's the stuff that you've probably seen it in. I'm not going to say the website because it's a right wing website, but it's all up there. If you sort of. I didn't, go to, I didn't go to prison or anything like that. It was at a protest. Or you smashed a window or something? Uh, no, not even that. I think the uh, the the height of my sins was putting a wheelie bin um, into a door, and the door, the magnetic lock, opened up. So, you know, at one point I was worried about breaking and entering into a bank, but it sounds worse than it was. So was this? were you sort of young and angry at the time, and, and now you wouldn't do that sort of thing, or would you still think that's a legitimate form of protest? Mm, I think if a young... I think if anybody does something... I think if anybody does something and they I mean the reason the primary reason why I regret that um, in, the, in the other instances I absolutely I mean I was uh, so those, those two occasions and then once I was arrested at a protest for the BNP where I, I literally did nothing and it, the, the case was dropped two weeks later um, I presume you were on the other side of the fence yeah yeah um, <laughs> I, I, you're trying to stop the BNP we should be it was clear. a mass arrest yeah it was, it was a an mass, anti-BNP march yeah it was an anti I wasn't yeah I wasn't with Nick Griffin <laughs> you know um, it was a mass arrest um the reason why, if, I, if there was a young person listening to this, and you know, if you ever lose your head, just think about potentially the CPS. The punishment is the process. That's the real punishment politically, um, and the CPS will put it. And actually, they've got no resources because you know austerity. So this might be going through the courts for twelve months, even if it's Mickey Mouse, even if it's only a probation order for thirty hours or whatever. So don't yeah think think clearly about that. And the the. The stress. My my parents were very supportive, but the stress it gave them, it's, it clearly wasn't worth it. And do they say, Aaron, crikey, just try and stand for Parliament like a normal political boy? Why do you have to go throwing wheelie bins around? I mean, but it was the the one I actually was guilty for was just um, I lost my head, and it wasn't. I mean, it wasn't even. I mean, like I if it, if it had been particularly bad, it would have been a custodial sentence, but it wasn't. So that's how I explained that one to them, and then the other stuff I think was per- it was perfectly peaceful protest. And do your parents share your politics? Is, was, were they an influence on you in that regard? Uh, my mum's since passed away. We didn't really get on... Say that. Us. <laughs> she was a wonderful mother while she was around. Um, she's since passed away. Politically, she voted for that all her life. Which is interesting, isn't it? Yeah, it is, yeah. She was quite... Um, how can I put this? Um, uh, she's Catholic. So she was very sort of self-righteous and, you know, this is what you do and this is what you're doing, very moralising. So I think maybe I sometimes get that from her, which I don't like. Uh, and my dad's quite just chilled out. He's quite he's a Labour voter. Um, he's not particularly political, but he's quite uh, he's just sort of Middle Eastern dad. So he just sort of blames America for everything. <laughs> oh, I can see where you get that. From. Yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> I'm, I'm actually I'm actually a bit more nuanced than him because something will happen. He goes, "This is America." And I'm like, you know, there may be strategic objectives or shared interests. And he's yeah. like, "No, it's just they hate us." So it's a bit more complicated than that, Dad. So that's interesting that your mum, mum was a, a Thatcherite. Mm. Would you talk politics with your mum? Would you say, oh, Aaron, when you grow up, you'll, you'll become a Tory? I think, actually, towards the end, she became like a Green or a Lib Dem. She's a very strange lady. So what, what, what sort of year would that have been? What was pushing her that way? Or what was taking her away from I the think, Tories? I think as a, as a working-class Southerner, she did identify with Thatcher in a way that probably Northerners just can't understand because she came from a working-class background... And I think she started. She didn't think she did start her own business. She started a sandwich shop. She was very much petty bourgeois, and she thought that the Tories could offer something which Labour couldn't. 
um, and I suppose there was a there was a level of sort of self identification with Margaret Thatcher almost, which you just she wouldn't have had with Michael Howard or David Cameron. Yes. So I think she probably voted Tory in twenty ten, um, and then I think um, I think after that very quickly she was kind of. She was one of these strange people that didn't vote Lib Dem in 2010, but maybe voted for them in 2015, yeah. which do exist. Do you think... Um, you're a passionate bloke. You know, the Tories are, are, are to, to an extent, the enemy. And, you know, calling people within the Labour fold of Tories seen as an insult. Is there ever a part of you that thinks, that's my mum I'm talking about? Um, I shouldn't talk about Tories like that. Um, no, I mean, I, I... We have a problem in this country just because of our electoral system, don't we? So there's somebody, like I said, when I was on this panel with Ben Bradshaw, on LGBT rights or um, gender pay gap, we completely agree. Yeah. There's not, there's not a, a speck of dust between us. But then on some other issues, just because we have this system where we can't have multiple, we have effectively a two and a half party system, right? You know, we're gonna dis- we are naturally going to disagree on massive things. So, I mean, I, yeah, it's probably not useful to call people in your own party Tories or in the Tory party call each other, you know, socialist or whatever. I think that's probably just naturally going to happen in our, in our system. Generally, I, I don't try to denigrate actual Tory voters, generally. Just the politicians? Um, I, think politicians are, I think politicians generally are fair, with, as within reason, generally fair game. Anybody in public life is fair game. You know, you can say uh, David Beckham was a numpty for doing this in a way you wouldn't yeah. say if you your mate. Um, I guess that's just a natural. That'd be harder on my mate. Would you? Oh God, yeah. So let's say if you had a friend who's a plumber and they did a bit of a tax dodge, how would you feel about that compared to like what was his name, Jimmy? Jimmy Carr. Jimmy Carr. Yeah. I'd be more annoyed with my mate. Really? I'd be like, come on, man. I think it would slightly, it would slightly lower them in my estimate. I, it sounds awful to say that, but I'd be like, what are you doing, not paying your tax? But you wouldn't have an emotional. Oh, maybe. Maybe. I think most maybe people... Not, maybe I'm not. Most, a, most people have a sort of... Uh, Philip Green, most people go, that person oh, over Philip there. Green's, uh, Philip Green <laughs> <Okay>. is... <laughs> Philip Green's a special case, isn't he, I think? He's, um, I just wonder, though, in terms of disagreement within parties, because obviously it's a big... I mean, it's big in both parties at the moment, big in all parties, but particularly within Labour, and particularly since 2015. Mm. Um, do you see it in a way... Because you're very robust. Do, do you see it almost as your job to be permanently almost in campaign mode against a particular wing of the Labour Party? No. Because it does feel like it's a, it's like a sort of ongoing war regardless of the news that there's this enemy in the Labour Party and they need to be you know highlighted and humiliated and driven out. Well, there's a, I think there's a few different things going on. So one, I do think there are Labour MPs who genuinely... I mean, maybe you'll say I'm wrong and we can disagree, but yeah. I think there are Labour MPs who genuinely don't want a Jeremy Corbyn government. Not many of them. We're talking five or six people. I'd agree with that. Yeah, so, I mean, often I think they get most of the sort of ire of sort of the, the Corbyn supporters online. And I think and I think the, the whole argument around mandatory selection, for instance, I felt almost sorry for people who aren't those five or six who didn't favour it because they became the sort of totems of why you would want you know, mandatory selection. They were walking advert for it. So there's, there's them. Then there's a sort of second group of MPs, let's say 20, 30, 40, how reliable would they be in, in the event of a Jeremy Corbyn government and how loyal would they be? Now, clearly, Jeremy Corbyn wasn't the most loyal MP to Tony Blair. No, it's completely disloyal. Quite. quite. <laughs> so the, the, the question is, what, what would we classify as 
disloyalty because obviously in the case of Tony Blair Jeremy Corbyn rebelling never had a real world impact in terms of a Labour legislative agenda yes and equally there was never any huge campaign by the Blairites to deselect people and well there was the, the occasional there was but it wasn't it wasn't but not not the level of noise and there the level bigger of... things going on I think yeah but there was I mean there was but the not first, in this sort of way the first deselection by a Labour MP was oh, the last deselection by a Labour MP was a prog- it was done by progress who was that? Um, I, I can't remember. I, need to, I can Google it, but we're in a... Uh, we're in a... I mean, I, it just wasn't a priority to deselect people. It certainly wasn't the... It, well, they were governing. I think when, that's, yeah. the, that's, the, that's the key issue, isn't it? It's that once Labour is in government... Um, I think, but even in opposition, the, you know, you th- look to 94 to 97 when Tony Blair's leading the party well, in opposition. That's because Kinnock did it all before, didn't he? Dece- well, I suppose, but that was... That was Kinnock did all the cleaning before. That's why did. Tony Blair was very lucky. So do you think there needs to be a, a, a sort of a proportionate response to the deselection and, and uh, the uh, prescription of, of militant, but the other way around? No, no, no. Look, there are lots of really good. There are lots of really good people. I don't just like I said because of the by virtue of the political system we have, which I actually think is probably on balance probably quite good. Um, I'd probably have an additional member system like in Germany, but I wouldn't want to see proportional representation with eight parties. I don't think that would help anybody because we'd still have to work together. It's just under different names. Yeah. Um, there are lots of good MPs. And my uh, Until recent, recently, I was living in Lewisham, Western Penge with Ellie Reeves. Um, Ellie Reeve, rather, sorry. Great. I don't agree with her on everything politically, but she's, she's, she's local. Uh, she's really, really responsive. She's a great campaigner. She broadly follows the whip. You don't have to follow the whip on everything. But, the, you know, and then, I, I, you know, so compared um, Ellie Reid to a, a Jess Phillips. You know, Jess Phillips, she came into Parliament in 2015, right? Yeah. She had a book out in 2016. Yeah, it's great. And What's then, wrong with that? And it's still her pinned tweet two years What's later. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? It does look sort of like... What's, <laughs> What's wrong with that? No, but what are her ambitions? Is it to be a cabinet minister or is it to be a sort of media personality? Well, she's going to be a cabinet minister under a Labour government. So that's that's down to the leadership to win an election first and foremost. No, but, but I'm saying, what do you think? Uh, no, but it, that was it. That speaks to me of her wanting to be a sort of personality, and that we need those people. Look at Dennis Skinner. Yeah, but it doesn't look to me like she wants to be a, an MP in a Jeremy Corbyn government implementing. But writing a book about politics when you're a politician is just entirely consistent no, with the brief was, of the job. Isn't it, it was an autobiography, wasn't it? After a year, it's every the, woman is about a woman's. You know, yeah. politics from a female no, my, perspective. My partner important. read it. That's why. That's why I was sort of flicking through it. And I was like, when was this written? And, it's a good you know. book. I'd rather politicians write books. I think that's a, a fairly positive uh, pursuit for politics. They're going to have anything else going on rather than having second jobs with multinational companies. Oh, that should be strictly banned. Writing, writing books about politics is, is fair enough, isn't it? Th- well, I'll tell you what, writing a book's bloody... Uh, it's Tony hard work. Tony Benn wrote loads of them. It's hard work. It is hard work, as you know. It's hard work. And I... I no, I, I just... I, 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 it's not to... It's not to... It is to sort of denigrate her, actually. I'm not going to lie. But... I'm I'm saying Ellie Reeves. No, no, but I'm saying Ellie Reeves and Jess Phillips. For all I know, may share the same politics, but the idea that I would absolutely say to people in Lewisham Western Pension, absolutely don't reselect her. She's absolutely fantastic. Whereas if it's Birmingham, I said I don't care. It's, it's it's a local matter, and I think there's a range. Of, David Lammy, another one. I don't agree with David Lammy on loads of stuff. He breaks the whip on loads of stuff, and actually he doesn't want to be a cabinet minister. But I think he has so much value to the national conversation. So I think he's a real asset to Labour. So, but Jess Phillips is an asset as well, isn't she? I just think people that constantly disparage Jeremy Corbyn for who he is rather than for what he stands for I think is really unhelpful and David Lammy doesn't do that David Lammy doesn't believe in Brexit he's ultra-remain and he says that and I, you know, I sort of, you know 
But wouldn't these principles be more more easily adhered to had Jeremy Corbyn not rebelled so often? If if Tony Blair wasn't talked about, with the level of vilification mm. is is disproportionate to whatever ills people think Tony Blair is responsible for. Well, you know what the response is, don't you, from the sort of Corbynite off-the-shelf response that is? Jeremy Corbyn never rebelled against the membership. He was with the membership. He rebelled against the party, you know, in the name of the membership. That's a great line, but it's, it's not a good of, argument. But it's, I mean, it's, Jeremy Corbyn was closer to the membership when he rebelled than a lot of these people are. Well, it wouldn't be the membership vote for David Miliband in the leadership contest in... No, in, but they were, I think the membership generally wasn't positive around... Oh, no, and also, Dave, Dave, um, uh, Tony Blair won, you know, a stonking victory as leader, you know, in the mid-1990s. But clearly, I think the membership probably wasn't supportive of things like... Excuse me. PFI, um, uh, various uh, expeditionary wars. So, although he did rebel on 400-plus times, so it's not just those we're talking about. There's a lot of rebellions. So then it is hard for people to take, isn't it, to say, well, on the one hand, extent. I can glorify the rebellion and really love it and it'd be part of my brand, and yep. that's part of the reason why he won, and then say, but actually, now I'm in charge, it's do as I say, not do as I did. To an extent, because there's a governing... There's a govern- Ultimately, you have to put it in context, and when he was rebelling, it didn't mean anything. And if Jeremy Corbyn had been rebelling... Well, it always means something. No, no, but if Jeremy Corbyn had been rebelling and it meant that certain le- Labour legislation couldn't go through and it imperiled the Labour government and it, it strengthened the hand of a Tory government, I think that's a very different proposition. I actually think he would have far less credibility than he does. And who knows? We can speculate about whether yeah. he would have done that or not, but he, you know... Probably would have done. Well, we don't, I mean, we don't know. Well, if he's the man of principle he says he is, then he would have done. We, I mean, I'm we, taking him at his own word. We don't know. I mean, look, I would love a world. I would love a world where Labour gets 160 at the next general election majority, and we have the luxury of 20, 30 people constantly rebelling against Jeremy Corbyn. I'd love that. I just don't think we'll have that luxury. So I, you know, I do think that you have to have one eye on people who aren't going to on the really big issues. I'm not talking about sort of every vote they have to go with the government, but on, on the manifesto stuff, you clearly have to go with the government. There's a manifesto. But with um, Jess for instance. Yeah. She's such an asset to the party. Strong working class woman who puts up with a lot of abuse and gets on with it. On so many things, there wouldn't be a cigarette, there wouldn't be a, a piece of dust between you. Yeah. Wouldn't she be better having the support of people like yourself? I do. I mean, I support her. As a Labour MP, I do support her. Of course I support her. I don't want her to, I don't want her to go away. I'm just saying... All I was making defense. I wasn't attacking her. I was making a defense of Ellie Reeves, which is to say, I don't agree with them, but absolutely, she she should not be reselected. Whereas, ultimately, this is the thing about reselection. I don't think I should have. They're, they're there to represent constituents and members. It's nothing to do with constituents, me. first and foremost. Well, yeah, but ultimately, they're they're going to be now with the enhanced trigger ballot. They are going to be reselected by members. That's just a fact. Um, so, in terms of the deselection express and, and, <laughs> and where that goes next, I mean, was that. Whose idea was that? I mean, you know, on the face of it, it looks like a fairly harmless bit oh, of fun. Uh, Thomas the Tank. Thomas the stuff. Tank. Yeah. Uh, it was left on Joan Ryan's desk mm. outside the door. So the deselection the door, yeah, yeah. Uh, And then it said, uh, enjoy Cyprus, mm. um, where she was off on holiday, which, you know, understandably she found quite intimidating and suggested people had been into her office and not through her diary. Wasn't that because she... I, 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 when I read that, I was like, oh, what's she got to do with Cyprus? And I Googled it, and she, it was because she had some position in government in regards to Cyprus, no? I think it's because she was going there and she felt that someone must have been through a how can, I mean, you, what, what, how can you deduce that? I mean, I didn't know that. I had to literally Google it because I, I didn't know. And then there was a reason that said she used to be the envoy to Cyprus. I mean, even with or without the Cyprus comment. Because yeah. that is no, that, 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 that sort of thing. Is, it is what I you're mean, saying. Is that, that's is worrying, that, isn't it? Well, it is, yeah. I mean, is it... But we don't know that. But should we be doing stuff like that, leaving sort of almost relishing the, the end of someone's career or, or, or sort of threatening them a little bit? Um... 
Okay, so uh, over the weekend I had a, a, a guy, a former, well, a Nazi, Facebook living from outside my house. Jesus Christ. Saying he, no, but alt- I mean, this is politics. Yeah, but it shouldn't be. No, I know it shouldn't be politics, but I think, okay, I'm not going to go on national television and go, oh, look, I'm being, I don't want my political brands, quote unquote, to be about, how, oh, everybody's having a go at me, it's so nasty. No, but you don't have to make your brand about that, but you can say this is unacceptable behaviour. I don't think, I don't think, ultimately, okay, so what would you, the person that did that, and by the way, I don't know who they are, I just got the pictures sent to me anonymously on WhatsApp, what do you think should happen to that person? It's not about what should happen to them or not. If they I, haven't I, broken into the office, if they've just got the toy, and, and I, I agree with you, if they've broken into an office and they've done what the, they should absolutely be, they shouldn't, you know, should be sacked. Yeah. But if they've just got a toy and put outside a, a shut door and they happen to know, for whatever reason, about Cyprus, yeah. what should happen to that person? It's not about punishment. It's about what are we contributing to the tone of our politics and what sort of debate do we want to be having? Mm-hmm. And what, as individuals, what actions do we take to make the world a better place and make politics... A, a, God knows at the moment in this country it needs calming down. Mm. We can still have principled and passionate differences, and that's important. Mm. But this sort of mocking of each other, and, 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 and it, there is an intimidating... Even if it's a little joke, there is something intimidating and, and provocative about that. Mm. Um... I would rather it just didn't happen rather than have people punished for but it. But she called, didn't she call her uh, local members? She called them all sorts of names on on Twitter, and I think, I mean, nobody talks about that. She's a holder of public office. Ultimately, I'm just some gobby guy on Twitter, and you have to hold but her to you... higher standards. I know, but I find it interesting that people aren't talking about the person who's the MP denigrating local members. Well, no, but we're talking about uh, the, the far right turned up outside your house. You yeah. Know, in the end, do you want to? make things nicer or mm. I mean that was Jeremy Corbyn's whole sales pitch wasn't yeah. it it was a, a kinder gentler politics yeah. and the opposite's happened in his name I don't think that, I mean okay so I think of contemporary culture I think of it as quite, as quite cliche high low culture right yeah. and you're a comedian so this is like yeah. this is your bread and butter and I think we have to admit and actually this is why a lot of people are so engaged in labour politics and I think increasingly in democratic politics you can only get people's interests you can't just inform you have to entertain yes again you know that yeah yeah and I think one of the strengths of the movement with Corbyn is it is a high-low culture movement. The absolute boil, this stuff, right? And I agree with you that, yes, aspects of the low culture stuff, this is one example of it. I, it's probably, it's, I, I've apologised for it. It's, yeah. It was probably a mistake. I don't, I don't think it's... But I don't think you can put it on a spectrum with, like, Joe Cox. I no. think that speaks to a different issue, which is we have a rising far right in this country. We're, you know, and Historically, they, they haven't really mucked about when it comes to violence. But are you contributing to a, a more pleasant environment or not, I suppose, in a pure sense? And but you're a comedian. I mean, you'll make yeah. jokes sometimes and mock somebody, and it's, it's probably quite nasty. And that's the downside of being a comedian. I, I and they don't try to. Ever, I try and think if I'm ever... I try not to be nasty. I take the piss, but I try not to be gratuitous or rude or... Um, isn't that the down- but everyone's, everyone's got their own standards, so it's not. I'm not morally judging. I just think. But isn't that the potential downside? Is that you may make you're a human. Yeah, but I'm also responsible for my own behaviour. And if I do cross the line, I have to apologise for it. And I, you know, occasionally people get offended. I, I would never. There are different types of comedian. There are different types of politician. Yeah. There are different types of journalist. I'm never comfortable being gratuitously nasty. And at least with comedy, sometimes if it does cross the line, not that there are different rules for it. Um, you're saying something, you're ad-libbing and stuff like that, whereas if you're pre-planning to intimidate someone... I think it's, we're talking... Look, we're talking there's about, a motive issue, isn't there? We're talking about a Thomas the Tank Engine toy, a, to, a tiny Thomas the Tank Engine toy. I get how it's silly that sounds. And it is, yeah, and that's... Yeah, I know it sounds... Cause it you go, well, why would you be offended by, by Thomas the Tank? But it's also the deselection express. It's kind of, it's coming for you. We if, know where you if are. I, if I had that outside my office, I'd say, 
effing idiot. And yeah, that's you're it. robust. End of story. You're a robust Joan, guy. Joan Ryan's a robust. Come on. Joan Ryan's been an MP for God knows how long. Come on. Also, do you, I mean... It's, it's about the, the politics of it. But it's also the wider politics of it, isn't it? You know, do governments in waiting do this sort of thing? That was just some God knows who, some junior staff or some kids, some intern, whatever. Who supported the leadership? I mean, presumably, yeah. Um, and is it... the well, no, but, I mean, an MP clearly hasn't done it. You know, so... Is it? I mean, if a Labour MP was doing that, I'd be, I would be worried. Yeah, I just wonder because there is one element of it where you say, you know, "Does this stuff really matter?" You know, it's all it, it's all a little bit rough and tumble. Perhaps there's no huge downside to it. I just we're living in an era now where you, you're absolutely right about informing and, 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 and entertaining. And we should say, in terms of Navarra Media, it's hugely successful. You get huge amounts of people watching your YouTube channel. You're educating masses of people, predominantly young people, mm. who are coming into politics for the first time in a way that I can't think of any other outlet that's doing what you're Thank doing you. in terms of providing huge amounts of information in a digestible way, in a way that doesn't feel like a bloke in a suit talking about the history of Parliament. You're doing it mm. in a completely fresh and original way. Mm. It's partly why it's been so hugely successful. It's, I suppose... As with anything, you know, whether it was LBC or Talk Sport or anything mm. like that, in order to keep the thing going, is there a danger that sometimes you're provocative for the sake of it? I'm thinking of the poppy stuff, I suppose. That's a political point. I mean, that's the, I, I would happily apologise for the Thomas Tank Engine. That's just a, yeah. For me, that's just a frivolous thing. Genuinely, you know, when I tweeted it, I didn't mean to offend anybody. Yeah. And actually, with the poppy stuff, we can talk about what my intentions were and so on. That was just a frivolous thing. And ultimately, it was done in a context where I didn't think we were going to get mandatory selection. And so, you know, if it, you say we're coming for you, if anything, that, that toy was uh, reflective of a, a political weakness. That even though the membership is this a strong... A trail system. No, no, even though the membership is this big and we've, we still can't get the kind of rule changes we'd love to see. And that's not just because of the Parliamentary Labour Party, it's because of a bunch of institutional actors within that movement right including various trade unions etc or leaderships in certain trade unions so I, I just didn't think of it as that big a thing yeah but with the poppies thing where yeah. you're saying that um, poppies are race they're racist and they're for white supremacists oh, I can show you the videos what, 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 what were the words um, the poppy appeal yeah uh, contend towards military triumphalism and which, which yeah that's racist of course it is. Well, it, military triumphalism for a formerly colonial power. Clearly, of course it's racist. But you're, you're, you know what you're doing when you do that, don't you? You're giving yourself enough verbal leeway to be able to get out of it. But you also want it was the a live to broadcast. go viral. But you know, you know no, I didn't. Doing. I actually, no, no, honest to God, I did not expect it to, to have this impact. No way. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. 
So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Um, so what are your thoughts on the poppy then? I mean, do you think it is racist and for white supremacists? No, I, I, we, did, um, we did a show on Monday and the clips, just a clip of the, the particular excerpts on our YouTube channel and I said, so there's a, few, there's a few things going on here. I've worn a poppy, right? Yeah. My dad was wearing, wearing a poppy three or four days ago. 90, as I'm sure is the case for all your listeners, yourselves, 95% of the people I know have worn a, a poppy yeah. at some point in their lives. My best friends are poppies. Right, <laughs> exactly. So obviously I don't think all those people are white supremacists. Yeah. What I think is the case is that the, the poppy appeal, the Royal British Legion was set up in 1921 to look after veterans of the Great War. Clearly, with the passing of Harry Patch a few years ago, 10 years ago, the final veteran of that war, they've had to change what they do. And I think there is an industry in this country now, and this is actually a critique generally of the third sector, third sector organisations. All organisations do it. Navarra Media, we could have full communism tomorrow. We would still have to contrive a way to make ourselves relevant and generate revenues. And I think there is an aspect to the poppy appeal, which um, is, it says it does two things. One is to guarantee the welfare of veterans, Clearly, the state should be doing that, first and foremost. I think it provides political cover to the state not to do that. Secondly, they say, well, we're going to teach kids about the First World War. And if you talk to most people, you say, well, what general led victory in the First World War? How many would say Ferdinand Foch? I I didn't know that until a week ago, right? Or how many would say, well, actually, British working class men didn't have the vote until 1918, women under 30 until 1928, German men had the vote in 1871, I didn't know that. I thought it was a war for freedom. So clearly, on these both these counts, on the welfare, we have 13... Oh, OK, let, let's halve the figure, because it's a contested figure. Let's say we have 6,500 homeless veterans, which literally nobody's going to contest. 6,500 homeless veterans, tens of thousands with PTSD. Most of the public doesn't have the first clue about what the first war is actually about. Clearly, when it comes to welfare, when it comes to uh, remembrance, the Royal British Legion is not doing its job. And all I said was, with the former, which is really important... Uh, veterans of aftercare the state should be stepping in and doing it better that's all I said but in terms of what this smells like and the political impact of it isn't the danger that actually you're being counterproductive to Corbyn you know one of the things that people even people who maybe would be you know in the middle who could vote for Corbyn think it doesn't there's something about British history he doesn't like it doesn't Mm. feel like he really goes in for the cenotaph stuff Mm. he looks uncomfortable there Mm. Aren't you legitimising? Aren't you providing cover on the other other side? Because people can say, "Well, look, this Corbyn lot—they don't like the poppy. Mm. They don't care about veterans. Mm. Uh, these aren't the things that they value." Uh, uh, isn't this? You're providing ammunition for Corbyn's amun- uh, enemies. Arguably, I mean, there's a few things going on. So obviously, that that goes to show that the Corbyn project isn't just about political power. I mean, there's also a hope that we can change culture and society somewhat. Um, there was a quote, there was a guy, John Mills, a Labour, Labour donor. He put up, I should say, La- Labour... Founder of JML. Yeah, I should say Labour donor, because he put, he put this quote up on Twitter, and he said, 100 years ago, we, were, we had sovereignty on a quarter of the planet, and now, you know, we're about to have this. And it's like, come on, man, you don't need to say that, you know. And um, there is a common sense which doesn't, you know... In 1919, the Amritsar massacre happened. I don't want... You're, you're making white people feel guilty I don't want anybody to feel guilty I just want us to remember the past 
1919, Amritsar massacre, a thousand Indians were murdered, was the beginning of the Indian nationalist movement. 1953, my father's country, democratic government was chosen, wanted public ownership of oil wealth. What happens? The Americans and the Brits get rid of that government. So what I'm saying is, clearly, there has not been a fight for freedom of these peoples in these countries overseen by the British state. That's history. It's in the past. I'm down with it. This country's given me absolutely everything. But I, I, there is a bitter taste in my mouth when people sort of say, well, if you're not willing to forget that and lie about it and jettison it, then you can't be politically palatable. Because it's, you know, you, as, a, as a Brit, you have to take this country for everything it's done for better and worse. It's done a lot of great things. But if we're going to talk about the bad things, I'm not going to say that they weren't bad. I guess it's just, for most people, the poppy is remembering people who've died. And they think of family members who are predominantly working class men who were sent off in their droves to be cannon fodder, mm. a lot of them. Mm. They don't equate it with the empire and with uh, Britain's military history. They don't, you know, obviously for recent people who've been lost in recent conflicts, they're thinking of the loss of loved ones. They're yep. not. Re- for, I think for most people it's not a kind of national pride, puff out your chest and fly but the flag all thing. I, all I, it's a solemn, sombre memory of all I, And I think that's people. very dignified. But the thing is, and that's all I said, I said it can tend, toward, it can tend towards military triumphalism, which is racist. That's all I said. And the whole thing about, and I said, you said it was grotesque. Yeah, I do think it's grotesque that if you go to a Tesco... Uh, Tesco and you want to buy a cut of lamb there's poppies everywhere how that I mean I thought what happened to British understatement you go you know to a butcher and there's poppies all over the leg of lamb and shoulder of pork and it's, it's disgusting uh, you're trying to like you said it's about solemn commemoration you wear your poppy near the shoulder don't you so I suppose it's just <laughs> but it's just where they were putting it and it's that you know, it's, if lambs want to wear poppies mate that's up to them but it is no, but it's about there. There is in this, you know, and I have a critique of sort of just charities generally. You know, they're trying to constantly, like any organisation, get more resources, get more influence, get more money, and there is this bizarre industry around sort of putting poppies and everything, which I find, I find it. You know, I've seen it, poppies on onesies, on knickers. I mean, it's just where have you seen poppies on knickers? You go to there's a Twitter account at Poppy Watch, right? And there's poppies on all sorts, mate. But does that matter? No, it doesn't matter, but I don't think it's particularly respectful either. I think what I think what they're doing is far less respectful than what I did, or you could say it's equally disrespectful. But I mean, I mean, surely you better putting poppies on knickers. It's it's a bit of a joke, isn't it? But it shouldn't be a joke, should it? it? Shouldn't be a joke. Well, I think if you, I think if if people want to joke about wearing the poppy on knickers, I, I don't think that's too. I think it's. I think it's really weird. Sorry. <laughs> Oh yeah, I mean, I'm not. I I think got, I'm not going to go out and buy a pair. I think it's really. I think it's really odd. Um, most, you know, most countries look at this stuff. They go. I just wonder about this. Is it, really weird. You're sort it, of commemorating a hundred years. All these young, young men were slaughtered, and you're buy, buying knickers. There's one of a. But half, most people aren't. Like, there's one person or whoever. You know, this is not a widespread British movement. It was. It was an MS. <laughs> But this is... I haven't seen that, but like you're not talking about the, the vast majority of mainstream people, are you? You're not talking about the British public no, going I didn't. poppy knicker crazy. No, the, the, the account is called Poppy Watch, so it's obviously it's a broader social phenomenon that is literally it's curating images from across the country. Yeah, but it's necessarily going to get the weird and wonderful that only by... Oh, no, I agree. Should happen in that's why I said... No, but that's what I said. All I'm, all I'm saying is I don't think that's particularly respectful. You were saying it's som- sombre and respectful. I'm saying, well, no, actually, there's clearly not... There's lots of stuff yeah, that isn't that. Well, but, yeah, but that doesn't... My mum's not going out buying that. Well, not, if she is, she's keeping it quiet. You know, she's not buying that sort of thing. Most there was people aren't. BBC One, right? The one show, is it called? Yeah, I know the one There was show. Chris Tarrant with his poppy, and there's the Cookie Monster with a poppy. Good on the Cookie Monster. Is that respect? The Cookie Monster. It's, it's better than not wearing it. Come on. And then there was that hawk. I mean, poor, the poor old Poppy Monster's had that, of course, pinned onto his, his bare flesh. 
And there was the straight into his hair. There the was that. Thing. Did you see that story on Twitter? Physical pain. You're, I think you're underestimating this as a social problem. Actually, there was that story of the hawk in Waterloo that was getting pigeons, and it had a poppy on its like foot. Great. No, but I mean, how does this remember? It's but, this is, but this is small, sake. so you're picking on. You're going to the extremes to find no, silly examples. I just gave you one from BBC to One, one the whole one thing. of the most popular national shows. Yeah, but if the one show was saying the cookie monster should wear Tesco. a poppy, then. Tesco, they were selling pizzas with uh, pepperoni poppies. Tesco, Wait, is, that, is, that, is that a sort of marginal shop nobody's heard of? Come on. I didn't see that. I mean, this is stuff that... I, I, I mean, I'm proper Brit patriotic about poppy pizza, pepperoni... Gasp. That's not that's that's not respectful, is it? But is it disrespectful? I don't think it's any more disrespectful than me saying thirteen thousand veterans being homeless isn't a good thing. I just wonder if Corbyn's going to win the next election, which you absolutely want him to do, I'm yeah. sure. And you've got to reach out to people who didn't vote for him last time. How does any of this help? Because, like I said, the project is not just Corbyn winning. The Corbyn. Uh, but the is that defeated? Is... Are you accepting that you think he won't? No, win no, it? the project's bigger. The project. The thing. Maybe where we disagree is that. Um, maybe it's unfair on you, actually. So I won't say that. Where I disagree with a lot of very thoughtful um, people from the sort of historically Blair right wing of the party is they're trying to appeal to the electorate of 20 years ago. The project of Jeremy Corbyn is trying to make the electorate for 20 years' time. So, yes, you obviously want to win the elections, yeah. but we also want to craft that sense of nationhood, who we are, what's political. Often we just say the Overton window, right? But yeah. it's, much, it's much broader than that. You know, and when I look at, for instance, the England football team, when I look at the under-19s, under-20s team, I see a very different country than when I see... Uh, a poppy with uh, a pizza with pepperoni poppies yeah but that and they can wear poppies on their shirt and it's very respectful and they have a minute silence and that's what it's uh, 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 there is something very strange about it that's all I'm saying I just don't see how you how you how you craft and shape a country I suppose in opposition in the same way that you can in government so you've got to win the election first to really shape a nation mm. otherwise you are just talking to yourselves and You've just reinforced the reviews of people who already agreed with you on the whole. Mm. If you really want to seize the machinery of government and shape global events in your image and have, you know, not just a, a socialist Britain, but then be able to affect a socialist planet, mm. you can't do much from opposition, is the truth. So if you do want to win, you do have to get those people who didn't vote Corbyn last time mm. and, and what are the things that are going to win them over? Do you really think... And is it stuff like this? How many people have heard... I mean, really? I mean, I had, I had Michael White from The Guardian saying, oh, this is, you know... And I was like, mate, nobody... And Because I was saying something to Jess Phillips. I actually thought it was a really polite thing I said to Jess Phillips. Obviously not. Um, I said, this looks to me like... Or this could be read as... I was really trying to measure my words to be polite anyway. Yeah. And he said, oh, this is why people won't vote Labour because you're attacking Labour MPs. And I said, mate... Nobody knows who I am. Nobody knows who you are. They don't care. But it, does it, it all add up? These are all incremental little things and people just get the odd bit. They get the odd bit from here or there. And if every time they hear of Corbyn or his supporters, it's a, a poppy thing or it's something negative rather than something positive, aren't you making his job a bit harder? YouGov had some data on this. So I think it was like people vote 35% on the policies, 35% on what party they want in government. Um, and then like, uh, single digits for who they want to see as the PM single digits local MP yeah. so this idea that local MP you know yeah, you oh might, that's always been you might nonsense. get 5% yeah, yeah. and hey that could be the difference yeah. right a great candidate can win an election I'm not saying otherwise but overwhelmingly people look at the policies they look at the sort of the whole party and I think you know the idea that this is going to be a game changer and sort of like marginals I just think it's pretty bit silly but do you I, su- I suppose it's, you get into the, tried to sort of get into it earlier is what is your role and what is your and what would, what do you want it to be? Because there is an element to which I think you revel fairly 
in the kind of shock jock. I'm, I'm trying to think of a better phrase for that. But I read your tweets and they read like left-wing Trump t- tweets. Wait, go on, pick up some tweets. You got well, you'll say things like, you know, you put the words, unfollowed by Jeremy Corbyn at Twitter account, yeah. so the General Secretary should be elected. Sad! Exclamation that was, mark. I mean, that was a send-up, right? That was a joke. Well, but then how, how am I supposed to unpick what it isn't? <laughs> but that's a, that's a, that's a, that is a that is a send-up. I mean, sad is clearly... But, but he did unfollow you. I think there was some sort of... I won't go into that. <laughs> but it's whoever runs his account on apology, I suppose. There, was, there, was, there were political disagreements about... I mean, this is a great example. You know, um, I think that the General Secretary should be, should be elected. The idea that we all agree on everything is... And other people don't think that. But why should the General, ele- why should the general Secretary be elected? I'll tell you why. Because when we're in power, the British Prime Minister is far too busy running the country to run an organisation. And if we want half a million members doing the stuff we, we need to actually build that common sense to govern and keep majorities time after time which Blair failed to do that people joined Labour before 97 there was a huge influx that wasn't nurtured and nourished um, you will need somebody and it will be a political position it won't just be technocratic who's in charge of that because the Prime Minister will be too busy at 10 Downing Street they won't have the time or the mental space to think oh how can I mobilise members around this issue but the General Secretary is basically the Chief Exec but I, it's I, the head of the staff. But my point, my point is, they, they, they shouldn't. My point is, they shouldn't be that. When your biggest resource, the role. yeah, when your biggest resource is your membership, it seems um, unwise to not have a political role at the sort of head. Of, or, look, you could even make it, make it Ian Lavery, the chair of the Labour Party, whatever. Okay. You're clearly going to need somebody who isn't in charge of policy, isn't saying, well, actually, I think this on the on defence policy, and the the leader thinks this. Somebody who's purely in charge of making sure Labour wins, getting the message to the country, making sure the membership is... a huge political problem then. You've got, you've got another seat of power elected yeah. and accountable to the membership. If they disagree with the leader of the Labour Party, then you've got real trouble. But we, I mean, we've got the NEC, we've, got all, we've already got these I things. know, but it's embodied in one person. Well, we've got... Yeah, we've already got... Prominent, elected... We've got the deputy leader, we've got the mayor of London, we've got the deputy... You know, deputy I mean, leader, the mayor of London. There's been the heart of the organisation. Why? Why, why would it be any different? Well, I just think... I, I think selfishly, you know, if... if if it was the Blair years, yeah. you wouldn't give anyone else that amount of power. You don't have it. You don't. I mean, the Blair Brown thing was bad enough without having an elected general secretary or chief exec who would then be another seat of power that people would organise around, and you'd get the clans and you'd get the briefings against the, the most senior. Maybe I'm being an idealist, but I just think I think you create a problem for yourself. I'm thinking. I'm, oh, you uh, could. That's the that's the yeah. That's the criticism, isn't it? I think have someone who runs the staff. Let Jeremy be in charge of the party and in charge of the country if it, if, if he gets into Downing Street. Yeah, but the, your biggest resource. You've got the media against you. You've got the establishment against you. You've got everything against you. Your biggest resource. I'm, I'm, we probably. I'm sure we agree on this. Is your half a million members? Hopefully, it will go up. That won't go anywhere unless they have polit- direct political leadership, which can't come, it obviously can't come from the Prime Minister. If it did, it looks terrible to the general public. They have to have political leadership. Um, so in terms of, j- just to come back to the point, I mean, that was a send-up, that tweet. But yeah. you do, is it knowing then? Are you sort of knowingly using Trump-esque language? You know, you're talking about fake news and sad and stuff like that. Is it all done with a knowing wink that this is... I don't think I'm, no, I'm not... I honestly don't think I'm that bad. It's not a bad, it's not a good or bad thing. I think it's a style thing that there's a, there's a you're using uh, you know structures that that exist. I think syntactically, Trump's tweets are, are very. I mean, they're pretty good. So I think that the idea that you should probably uh, truncate sentences into like one or two words that's probably true. But I mean, that's just, that's just the genre. I think. Look, I think actually a lot of this is Twitter is a really toxic genre generally for political yeah. conversation. Like I retweeted this thing I was saying about Jess Phillips I retweeted her tweet and then made my point and it's like you're trying to instigate a pile on and I was like well I can see why it looks like that but that is the quote tweet is just 
Yeah. You know, if I was the Guardian Live blog and I embedded it and I made I, this reads like this, that's the same thing. The Navarra Media or, readership and audience, like, they care about this stuff. So what's the difference? But I agree that, you know, that's, that's the problem with the genre of Twitter. So with, 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 with being unfollowed by Jeremy, uh, did that hurt? Yeah, of course it did. It's such a weird... It's such a... I mean, it, it simultaneously sounds like such a small thing, but it's also it's also a big thing, isn't it? It's a, being unfollowed on Twitter, people go, what, what's the problem with that? But it, it also, it's, it's a signal, isn't it, from the centre? Yeah. To, you know, saying, Aaron's not... I think Aaron's not that kind of guy anymore. Well, that's the th- I think the thing is, Labour, if it's not going to be able to incorporate dissent on a range of things, it's going to have huge issues, and that, to me, was a manifestation of that. Um, so, in terms of, is the power the right word? Certainly, the organisation, the influential people that are around um, the Corbyn project, you're hugely influential. People talk about this WhatsApp group. That's, um, uh, I'm guessing, you, Matt Zob, cousin Owen Jones. I mean, how many people are on it? No comment. <laughs> Can I get on it? I would, I'd love to be on I'm it. on loads of WhatsApp groups, so I don't know which one you're talking about. So then how can you not comment on it? Well, because I don't I mean, I'm on loads of WhatsApp groups, so and most of them haven't got the people you just mentioned. But I mean, most of them are secret. And are they... I mean, I'm sure you're on secret WhatsApp groups, aren't you? I'm not on WhatsApp because I haven't got enough, I haven't got enough memory on my phone. It's a constant problem. The data's always telling me <laughs> off for it. So we have to do everything on iMessage. But for some reason, why does WhatsApp make it easier to form a group than, a, than just on a normal phone? Why can't we just have text groups? I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a, this is a dispute between Daisy and I. But there's no extra functionality that WhatsApp gives there you. There is. Well, pictures. But you can still send... I know it's end-to-end encryption, but we don't need that for this podcast. Well, even then, it's not, so, yeah, it's not safe because people can just screen grab stuff, can't they, ultimately? Yeah. So. But in terms of... But there is a network of unnamed individuals who I may may not have got their names right... Where you sort of organise on behalf of? No, I mean, there, there's the actually there's the there's WhatsApp groups um, which I'm not on, which absolutely do that, and I'm not I'm not in them. There's several that I know of, and I'm not in them. I suppose in a way, you don't really need them because people would follow the leadership's lead anyway. I mean, you instinctively know where Corbyn is on issues, so there's no need, perhaps, once he's said what he's thinking. Is there a need for dissemination and uh, an organisation, or people would just do that themselves anyway? I think there's so many. I mean, I, I, for instance, the primary WhatsApp groups I use are actually with Navara colleagues. So, um, just for everyday, you know, sort of project management. So, yeah, I mean, this stuff bleeds, I think, from God knows what. It must be a thrilling time. Just thinking of you and your politics. You know, a few years ago, you remember the Green Party. Mm. That unless not, not for very long, not but not for very long, but nevertheless, yeah. right? And I'm not making, I'm not, I'm not using that as a bar, but I'm no, just thinking it, so this. In a very positive way, you've mm. gone from being a member of a party that would only ever get into government by coalition, you know, mm. if Gordon Brown would have been able to cobble together the numbers in 2010, and even then it would have been in a very, very, very small way, to now being part of a movement that's on the brink of... I mean, who knows? By the time this podcast goes out, Jeremy Corbyn could be Prime Minister, because the world is raging out there. But so are you. You're a Labour member, aren't you? I'm not a Labour member, no. Not anymore? No, not anymore, no. But you're really close to... You're not just a member, you're at the, you're at the heart of what's happening. You're, you are providing intellectual ballast. You're providing ideas, and you're influential. Like, it must be... A, this must be like being in a band just before Britprop kicked off. No, but it I must mean, be like being in Shed 7 <laughs> in like the 90s, or being a roadie for Oasis. We're, like, we're about to take over the world. 
Yeah, but the flip side is I had the former leader of sort of Peggy Da, you know, at my house. I mean, you know, uh, I think, you know, the great lesson of the last couple of years is presume nothing. Look at the SNP. Yeah. They got all those seats in 2015. They lost 40% of them last year. They thought independence was inevitable. I mean, it probably probably is, actually, if we get hard Brexit. Um, look at the Tories uh, last year. Look at where, I mean, we all concluded, I think, something similar after 2016, the Brexit vote. Things can change very quickly in, in, yeah. in politics right now, so I wouldn't take anything for granted. I mean, clearly things are very, very, very positive for Jeremy Corbyn. Things are very positive just generally for people with a radical prognosis for the status quo, whether that's people on the far right, whether it's people on the left, whether it's ultra-nationalists, you know. Um, so... Yeah, but just for you personally, it must be there must be a thrill to be near the centre of something that is so important, that is so in many ways popular, and it, I mean you could end up working in Downing Street. No, why not? Impossible. It's not impossible. No, if Corbyn impossible. wins, they'd bring you on, wouldn't they? No, it's impossible. Well, you'd, you'd get to go for a party at the very least. I'd, I'm sure I'd be. You know, I, I, I genuinely find. Um, I genuinely find working with everyday people far more gratifying. I there would be there would, if Corbyn won, there would be days long street parties, and I'd be at those. I wouldn't want to be at Westminster or Portcullis House or Ten Downing Street. I'd want to be with every regular people. But you'd want to shape events, wouldn't you? You're, you're an intellectual, yeah, and you're passionate. Yeah, but often, often, often that's not done. That's not done. In, in those sorts of areas, you know. Look, at Paul, Paul Mason doesn't need to be in 10 Downing Street to be influencing the politics or the agenda of the next government. He's a he's an author, you know, he writes his articles or whatever, he intervenes in that way. So, I, I, as the older I get, the sort of more I think... I, yeah, you're right, I have to make a decision about it. Because I do enjoy the day-to-day, -day, like you say, the carry-on. Yeah. You, you know, as a mindset, you can't do that and do the sort of long-term thinking. It's impossible to do both. So I think ultimately I'm sort of I'm tending towards the latter. So what would you do then? You'd, you'd, uh, I mean, Navarro, I guess, is a, a mixture of a, a news service and a think tank. Would you, would you sort of beef it up on the policy side? or? Let's see what happens with this book. I want, a, I want a think tank to come out of the book. Because it could become, Navarro could become the IPPR of the future or the policy exchange. Or, mm. If you get a Corbyn government, they're going to be coming to people like you for ideas. Yeah, I mean, if this book does really well, I want it to become the basis for a think tank. How much is the book? <laughs> um, oh, I think on Amazon it's reduced, but I'm not meant to say go to Amazon. <laughs> but, of but, course, yeah, but look, this is the world we live in. But go to Amazon. That's, <laughs> it's number one on Amazon, that looks a lot better. It's just such a... I sort of... Envy is not the right word, I guess. I just think it's really interesting to talk to people who are part of something big that is in the ascendant that is happening, whether it's music or art or football or, or politics, and you're part of a, an exciting movement, whether I agree with it or not. Yeah. And I just think it must be such a thrill to, to, to be such a leading member of that, of that group. I mean, no, this is... I mean, it is... And yeah, it's not... It is historic. I mean, James Butler, um, my co-founder at Navarra, wrote something for us today covering the events of the last 24 hours. Um... And I mean, I think yeah, Britain's going to have a once in a century chance to remake, remake itself. I think, and that's not just because of Jeremy Corbyn. I just think that's because of a bunch of external factors. Yeah. Brexit, the end of a particular economic paradigm. We had it in '45, we had it in '79, um, and I think you know it's a huge, it's momentous. And you, you changed your mind on Brexit because you were a Lever and then I, a I'm very critical of the EU. Um, I'm very, very critical of the EU. And when I wanted to vote Leave. 
uh, I, I said, I mean, it's, there's a video that says this. I, I said, we'll stay in the EEA, it doesn't matter. Silly me. Mm-hmm. We'll stay in the EEA, it doesn't matter. But what it will mean is it'll be a blow to the EU. They'll realise they can't carry on like they are with Greece. Um, it'll disrupt things a bit, and that'll be very useful. Then in the final few weeks, when you had, you know, people like Dan Hannan and someone explicitly say, no, more Farage actually, explicitly saying, we will leave the single market. And I was just like, I mean, you can look, tw- tweet search my tweets. I was like, that's going to be a car crash. That, that won't that won't work. So um, and there wasn't a big left campaign, and at the time, obviously, the Corbyn project looked quite fragile. So I, th- I th- you know, I was risk averse, but I'm not. Uh, it, if we were in in the eurozone, I'd say we have to leave because the eurozone, I think, is destined to fail. I think it's terrible. The EU is a different project. So in terms of seeing the way that Brexit's unfolding, mm. is there a part of you that sort of agrees with the way it's going? In what, in what respect? In the fact that we're leaving, we're leaving the institutions of the European Union. Is there part of you that says, actually, that's quite a good thing? Mm, no, no. I think ultimately we're going to have to be part of a, a larger regulatory area, whether it's... Um, we obviously don't want to join NAFTA um, or the EU. We're obviously going to have to be part of a, a, a larger regulatory area. We'd rather have some democratic input into that. I think the Eurozone is a really, really bad idea. I'm actually interviewing a chap called Kostas Slapovitsas. He was formerly a Syriza MP. I'm interviewing him on... Yeah, tomorrow. Um, and I have misgivings about the Germans' ability to manage, you know, effectively an empire, um, a bureaucratic empire. I mean, you know, the euro is now... It's, it's a competitor to the dollar as a reserve currency. I have reservations about the Germans being able to manage that because they've, historically the Germans have never been able to exercise hegemony. There's a guy called Giovanni Arrighi talks about this. Um, Leo Panic talks about this. They're very much tick the box. So a classic example at the moment, and we had this with the exchange rate mechanism, the ERM in the early 90s. Britain was like, look, our inflation is running away. You need to stop running all these surpluses. And they're like, no, we're ticket that we have to run our surpluses. Then Britain leaves the exchange rate mechanism. It means we can never join the euro. Same thing right now is happening with Greece, range of Italy as well. No, Italy has to do this. And it's, you know, when you're managing a broader political entity, whether it's democratic or undemocratic, you have to have some give and um, I just don't. It, it seems to me that the European establishment, which is, I mean, primarily Germany, um, don't don't seem capable of that. You sound quite you're a sceptic. No, I mean, what, uh, I think the eurozone is destined to fail. Yes, uh, I suppose well, we didn't enjoy it, so that was a, that no. That's great. Yeah, it's great. Very good. Of Gordon Brown and very others that, uh, that, that, that we didn't. Um, I just wonder in terms of because there's always been a, an issue about Jeremy Corbyn and how you know. Enthusiastic mm. is by his own admission seven and seven and a half out of ten. Uh, and this week, when you see a, a government falling to pieces over Brexit, a Brexit that so many people believe will will punish working people, yep. regardless of what sort of Brexit it is, it will be working people who pay the price first and, and hardest. Why can't Jeremy Corbyn bring himself to say we'll have a people's vote on the deal? I mean, it seems politically. I mean, we've had seven resignations today, haven't we? So, yeah. uh, uh, I mean, I probably shouldn't talk about things today because your listeners will hear this in a few days. But we're having multiple resignations. Goodness knows where it will be in a few days' time. So, I think that political stratum's probably been borne out. The problem is, we we have the fixed term Parliament Act. If yeah, we didn't, we had that before, and we had an election within two years. Well, no, no, no. But we require two thirds of Parliament, right? So it seems unlikely. But Corbyn would want an election, wouldn't he? Yeah. So if you've got, and all the Tory Remainers might want one to teach the Brexiteers a lesson. It's not inconceivable you could get two-thirds of MPs to vote for an election. I have no problem with, I mean, I, I have a problem, I disagree with it, but I have no problem really 
with Labour putting a people's vote in their manifesto. But when you've got Labour, the Tories, ran their manifesto the last election, nobody talks about a people's vote, they've got 80% of the vote. You know, it's not good. It's not that's not our that's not our political system in this country. Well, it, it sort of is, though, isn't it? Because manifestos are a broad set of aims, and then events. That was a huge issue, and it was. It the public was, is well. If, if people disagree, they can vote the way in the referendum that would. That would, that would I really. I, I just don't. You know, I used to be very critical of the Westminster system and first past the post, and all. I used to love re- the idea of referenda, and oh, I hate it. No, no, and now, no, <laughs> yeah. but now I'm like, oh, right, I, I get it. You know, like I just, you know, the two-party system, it's not perfect. I think you could probably improve it with open primaries in both in both parties or close primaries. You know, to allow new voices in. Yeah, but I think it's, it's it works pretty well, and I think referenda aren't really the solution. And if you are going to have a referendum, it has to be in ele- in a in a, an election manifesto. I think. I'm not. I'm not entirely convinced. I just think when you're facing something this severe, this big, but so the what, country would understand why a, a government would grant a but, referendum in this but, scenario. But, but how would a, how would another referendum? I mean, we're leaving the EU. I'm not just saying this to be. No, no, March 29th. Yeah, 11 no, we PM. are. We are leaving. So big we're leaving. Ben will dong. So, so how's how's okay? So that's a huge thing. I agree. We may have shortfalls in medicines and all sorts of things. I mean, probably, blood. Probably. probably I mean, it's. <laughs> Petrifying. Yeah, well, I mean, we don't even, even if it's just even if it's just quite bad. I mean, we, no, it's not good. People probably would pass away because of energy or yeah. whatever, right? You would expect the leader of the Labour Party. No, but how? No, but how does second referendum help that? Because we're leaving it. Well, unless you want a referendum before March 29th. If you do it before March 29th, and you stop, you pause. And the European, no, because the Europeans have already said they won't, they won't extend this period. They won't allow another referendum in the absence of a change of government. But you've already got, you've already got a, a transition period. The point is, you can Brexit can be stopped, and if. It's going to be a disaster for working people. Why isn't the leader of the Labour Party more enthusiastic about trying to stop it? I think it's. Too, I think there's a very good argument to say put a people's vote in the next manifesto, or to begin to say we need to rejoin the EU after we've left. I just don't see how, when we're leaving in March, saying that a people's vote is the political solution. It just doesn't make sense to me. Well, I suppose what I find odd is Jeremy Corbyn is is, is, is a man of principle who yeah. basically says anything is possible if the political will exists. Yet on the single biggest threat to our country's economy and society, says, oh, well, we've got to leave anyway. The government has to... Look, Syriza organised their referendum in, like, two weeks. Yeah. The government has to want it. The government doesn't want that vote. So, ultimately, it doesn't matter what Jeremy Corbyn but thinks. The, but the parliamentary arithmetic at the moment doesn't exist to deliver any deal through Parliament. It's the only way to break the deadline. Yeah, but, the gov- but you shouldn't be lobbying Jeremy Corbyn for that vote. Like, the Labour having this position on the people's vote... Imagine votes. the impact it would have. Zero. None. It, it would have actually, a huge impact. No, it would, actually, it would actually fortify the Tories. You believe in his ability to change hearts and minds. No, no, it would fortify... The, the whole Tory plan over the last two years has been premised on Labour being the stop Brexit party. They never did it, and now Brexit's falling apart. But Labour's... Uh, huge showing at the last election was massively due to people perceiving that Corbyn would stop Brexit, and if he doesn't, if he doesn't start to be more vocal and, and more passionate, isn't there a danger that that, that forty that, percent that starts true? to erode? Is that true? I was at University of Manchester study about it. It's fantastic, detailed analysis. I need to read that because I mean the studies I've I've read is that you know the primary reasons people went to Jeremy Corbyn, you know, yes, Europe, but there was a range of other issues up there. So, for instance. Um, take what's her name? The uh, the lady, the famous lady. She was talking to Jeremy Corbyn about hosp- hospital car parking fees. Gemma Martin, or whatever her name is, famous person. I don't. I'm not a celeb. Sponsor. Gemma Collins. Gemma Collins. Tower. Right, Gemma Collins, and she was talking about that. And I think yes, Europe clearly was top three for most people, but I think people have a range of views. But young people, you know, is 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 huge. Is that true? I mean, is that true? I mean, I talk to Labour members. I mean, Labour members obviously a small sample. I think they trust Jeremy Corbyn, and you might say, mm. well, actually, that's misplaced. 
I think they trust Jeremy Corbyn ultimately to make the best of a bad situation. That may mean staying in the single market in the EEA. I don't know what that really means. Do you, I mean, what do you detect? Because you're, 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 you're sort of at the heart of all this. And I'm looking at from the outside. Um, I would say that most Corbyn supporters are pro-European. But this scenario is in a way forcing them to choose between whether they want to sort of defy him and be pro-European mm. uh, or be loyal to Corbyn and, and get a Corbyn government and, as you say, make the best of a bad situation. Is there a danger that, that Corbyn contributes to a, a new Euroscepticism on the left and, no. and sort of incubates it? No, I mean, I... I, I... I saw. I think Paul Mason's really good on this. You know, he says, "Look, if Labour can't negotiate a good deal, which most of our membership want, and that would presumably be done at conference when Labour is in government, yeah. you have to put it to a people's vote." I think that's a really fair way of doing it. And I just, I don't see what the issue is. And in terms of the left Euroscepticism, I mean, that existed before Corbyn became the leader, before Brexit. You know, yeah. in '75, it was what two to one to stay in the EU. At that time, the only people that wanted to leave was the left. It was the TUC, the left of the Labour Party. So. Uh, I don't think so. And if and if we can teach people on the left, you know, the limits of the European project, and any any political project has limits. Um, great. I'd like us to be in the single market, but actually, that the, the issue is that's not politically palatable for most people. I'd love us to be a rule maker, uh, a rule taker, not a rule maker. Bit, a bit of a blow to the European project. Look, France and Germany, they want an army. They want. They do want a European super state, right? We. Do, the reality is Britain doesn't want to be a part of that. It's probably best for them. They probably ultimately it will have to become a political entity, right? Okay, well, we'll have some sort of very extensive trained arrangement, you know, keep elements of freedom of movement. But I think, you know, there is going to be a... A digression there. In terms then of... Uh, in terms of um, what the future holds for... Uh, for you and for Navarra. Just in terms of Navarra media... Does it take his name from the Italian province, or is it something else? Yeah, it's from the town of Ori, yeah. And what, what inspired you to, to name an organisation for that? So it's a bit of, um, uh, it's like a nowhere town in Italy, Navarra. It's Piedmont. That's right, yeah. Um, and you may know Torino, Turin. Absolutely. Yeah, Juventus, uh, town where, the city where Juventus play. Um, so there's a film called La Classe Opera of in Paradiso, The Working Class Goes to Heaven. And it's filmed there. And it's a bit like Made in Dagenham, but it's Italian. So maybe in Italy there's a there's a there's a ultra left group called Dagenham. <laughs> It'd be the same thing. Yeah. That are that are um, trying to prop up the uh, the Italian socialist movement, perhaps. Uh, and what is the future for Navarra? Hmm. We've just had our AGM, so uh, which is not a membership meeting; it's a sort of a team team meeting. We had a very successful year. We've raised a lot of resources, which still isn't actually reflecting our output because you know there's a bit of a, a lag there. We want to become the progressive media outlet for millennials in this country and probably in the Anglophone world, which we're obviously a million miles away from, and also ultimately Gen Zers. And we've not cracked that, and I don't think anybody has. So, what is the way to crack it? Oh, good question. Good question. I mean, I know I'm, I'm, I'm just about a millennial, so I sort of can, I know that one. And that I'm also, technically a millennial. That can't be right. I turned eighteen in two thousand. There's no way I'm really. I think you are. It's I feel so much older. I'm getting cranky already. <laughs> I've already got my favourite part of the chair. I had like biscuit, and we've talked about this. But hold on, you were I'm a granddad. You, you were working for New Labour, right? I worked for the Labour Party back back in the day. So you were 18 in 2000. I turned 18 in 2000. So yeah. how old were you when you were working for New Labour? Oh, so I was working for Labour towards the end. So I started working for the party in 2005. Um, I worked for Labour MPs before then, but I was only employed directly by the party from 05 to 07. So it was like, 
Cool, know. that must have been interesting. It was incredible. Because things were starting, you know, all the things that used to work were no longer working. Yeah. By elections, we were, you know, all the seeds of the, the, the destruction of New Labour then were, were, were already clear to see. You know, I think the blinding went by election in 2006 or seven, where um, working class communities were starting to turn against us. You know, you, you could see the, mm. you could see where the cracks were appearing. Um, so it was an interesting time, actually, because it wasn't unbridled success and it wasn't, you couldn't take success for granted anymore. So you had to change the way you were doing things. Um, and I'm not sure how successful we were at changing things at that point. But uh, I, I mean, I, I loved working for a political party and I miss it. So that, I guess in a way, that's why I sort of... Would you like to go back? I don't think so, not anymore, no. It's exhausting. It takes so much out of you. It's relentless. And I think you can do it while you're young and fit. And, uh, you know, while you've got the, the reserves of energy and, mm. uh, I think, dedication to do it. But after a while... It becomes exhausting. And inevitably, even when you're alongside people you agree with, factionalism, I think, in politics is inevitable. Yeah. Regardless true. of whether it's left, right, or centre. Mm-hmm. People say, oh, the left will always eat itself. It's true, the right's true, the centre left is true, the centre right. In the end, people get jealous, they get passed over for promotion, and they seethe. And that happens in all walks of life. And that, what, that's what I always struggled with, the internal stuff. I found that very hard. Um, because in the end, you ended up resenting people that you were voting for and voting with rather than the people you were campaigning against. And that perhaps is a, a lesson for us all. <laughs> Who knows? No, I agree. There's, there's a time limit on any political project, I think. And even with Corbynism, there's probably a time limit of let's be optimistic 15 years. But he's, I suppose, you know, let's say that the election isn't until 2022. Mm. He'll be 70 odd. Mm. I mean, how, he could do what? One term? But we're getting older as a society. This is going to be, I mean, maybe not quite yet, yeah. but it's going to be more and more common to see heads of state, prime ministers, politicians in their 60s, 70s, 80s. I'd rather have older. I prefer experience over youth any day mm. in, a, in a leadership, particularly the leadership of a nation. Yeah. But I just worry about him specifically. Like, it, time is getting on for him in a way, isn't it? How old is he now, 68? Yeah, he must be. Some Late 60s. I think, I think you're going to get more and more... PMs and stuff in their 70s. I, I really don't think that's... A, as long as people are cognitively, yes. you know, 100%. I think, like you say, I, th- I think John Major or Jeremy Corbyn or... You have to really think, probably even... Maybe it's only a Tony Blair would have been politically ingenuous enough, hubristic enough to have called the, the referendum like Cameron did. It's not because Blair and Cameron agree on That's just young men or young people. Blair would never have done it. Or whatever. But, you know, my yeah, point I, is... He, an older politician never would have done that, I think. Why would I never have done it? Because he wouldn't have put at risk something that he valued so much. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's ridiculous. I mean, it's stupid. It's the biggest political it, it in It was such a bad idea. Yeah. It was the total opposite of Blairism. Um, but there we are. But then That's the issue... But then it still would have... But maybe, because I think Brexit can only fail on its own merits and has to demonstrably fail on its own merits, maybe this was the only way to ever put this to sleep. I think the one lesson we learn from referendums is... They never put the issue to sleep. They inflame them beyond belief. But do you not think if we leave the EU and then, like, it's going to be, like, children of men or something? <laughs> or the road? Do you not think people are like, maybe yeah. this was a bad idea? Yeah, but wouldn't Boris Johnson not go through that? No, but this, was, this has clearly been a thing for 20 years, Matt. Yeah, but only amongst certain people. The British public weren't hugely animated about um, the European Union and our membership of it. The referendum forced it up. People's true. priority tables. UKIP came first in the European elections. The in European 20, elections in 2014. 2014. Turnout was what? Twenty five percent. Yeah, they came first. 
Yeah, but in a, in a, in a protest vote. Yeah. No, I know, but I, well, that's in why... In a low turnout it, election. Yeah, that's why, that's why Tony Blair never should have made those proportional representation sort of elections, because it allowed these guys to scale. That Maybe, you know, look, if it wasn't for that, we probably wouldn't even have Brexit. But we do, and it, it wasn't was, for Tony Blair. No, 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 no. Actually, no, there, was a, there was a democratic impulse there, wasn't there, to make those proportional representation elections for European elections. Actually, you it, can still have UKIP MEPs and say we're not having a referendum on the European Union. The two it, on, it was going. It was causing perfectly happy. Yeah, but it was causing. No, but you can understand calculatively why a Tory party, which was losing four million votes to a party to its right, yeah. choose to do it. I could see that. You see also, why they did it. But I can also see the benefit in them not doing it and governing in the national interest. Yeah, but they would have they would have lost, and UKIP would have become a national party. They wouldn't have lost. They, they, they won it. Cameron increases majority by getting rid of Lib Dems, not UKIP. Yeah, but if you remember, what was it, 2014? Yeah, I remember it. Yeah, and you've got. I remember it every day. <laughs> but well, no, no, I don't know. I'm him asleep. No, because this is like you know, sort of the politics obsessives remember this stuff because it's not that long ago. You know, around the UKIP conference <clears throat> in 2014. There was talk of six, seven, eight defections. Yeah, yeah. And it was only ever two. That's right. Carswell and Reckless. Yeah. And I think... That, that sounds so Dickensian, that. Yeah. Carswell and Reckless would be a kind of car... A dodgy second-hand car peddler yeah. in, a, in a Dickensian novel. Yeah. And I think that's because most Tory MPs knew that Cameron was going to secure a referendum uh, in the next manifesto. So if, if that wasn't the case, it would have been more people and, it's, and this only would have moved further up the agenda. So it was prob- I think it probably was inevitable. There's so many things we could t- we've already talked about an hour and a half, which oh, wow. is the longest. And, and we could do another hour and a half. I don't think it would be fair on the people who listen to this show to, to inflict that on them. Uh, and I say that, p- not, nothing, no reflection of you, purely as a reflection of me, uh, that people will be, people will be sat in their cars now needed a piss or whatever. There will be, there will be pots overflowing and, um, and pasta getting burnt. So we should leave people to get on with their daily lives. Aaron, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you in here. My pleasure. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. Thank you. Well, there you go, Aaron Bastani, uh, thoughtful and controversial in equal measure, um, and uh, I mean the poppy discussion. I thought was 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 really interesting because it's really you know you can watch someone say something and go, but he knows what he's doing. He's being provocative for the sake of it, um, and I think he slightly pushed back on that. Um, I think he kind of knows what he's doing, but nevertheless, um, even with controversial opinions, sometimes it is healthy to just. Consider the merits. I disagree. Um, but just to think through um, someone's perspective on it, even if they are maybe perhaps exaggerating it a little to make sure that it gets traction. Uh, and then, of course, your own judgment is uh, contained within that. Um, but whether you agree with them or not, uh, I'm sure you'll agree. He was a fascinating guest and someone that's really interesting to, to hear from. Um, so, yes, the next guest and the live show is Emily Thornbury, which I can't wait uh, for. And uh, tickets for that have already sold out. Um, but as I said earlier, uh, the 1st and the 5th of December at the South Bank Centre in London, which is me doing a, a fully updated um, stand-up show, fully updated version of the Edinburgh show. And the 19th and 20th, the political parties at the Leicester Square Theatre with live music from MP4. And then next year, around the country. So from February, I'm on tour in Edinburgh, Glasgow, Chorley, 
um, oh crikey, where else? Bristol, loads of other places. I'll give you the full list um, in the next show. But if you go to mattford.com slash live, I'm probably coming to a town and city near you. So you can come and see me there. Thanks, as always, for downloading this. If you can leave a review, it really helps. If you can share it um, amongst friends and on social media. And email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. I get so many good emails. Uh, I really appreciate it. And I love hearing where people listen. So um, it's just a nice way to keep the conversation going after after the podcast. And that hopefully makes it feel a bit more interactive for you that... um, at whatever point you've listened to this episode, it may be years in the future, you can still... Um, there's still a way of, 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 of reacting to it, I suppose. Um, and you can follow me on Twitter, at Matt Ford. So, as always, thank you for downloading. I'll be back next week with another wonderful guest. And, um, well, enjoy the news. Ta-ra! Ta-ra!